You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, the podcast for marketing professionals in higher education. Join us every week as we talk to the industry's greatest minds in student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where marketing in higher ed is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. I'm Troy Singer. And I'm Bart Kaler. And uh, before we get going, Troy, I just wanted to kind of do a shout out to Adula. It's adula.ai. And uh, they were sponsors of the AI Summit. And if you didn't have a chance to check that out, go to the higheredmarketer.com slash AI dash summit and uh, grab a digital pass. But Adula is an awesome platform that allows you to kind of on any website, doesn't matter whether you're using yeah, Hannon Hills Cascade or, or Drupal or WordPress. You can work with Adula and put a piece of code on your website that actually allows it to have a chat bot, you know, utilizing all the generative AI and actually be able to, you know, you could train it on your website, you train it on all of your uh, admissions materials, and it really puts together an awesome chat bot. So shout out to them. Thank you for the sponsorship of the AI Summit, and uh, be sure to check them out sometime. Yes, thank you, Adula. Today's episode has us chatting with Spencer Smith from the University of Tennessee, but before we talk to him, I really would like to take a moment to thank our listeners, especially those of you who choose to leave five-star reviews for us, like Curious Creative 22. They said, this team has curated a super podcast filled with beneficial and compelling content, complemented with knowledgeable and charming hosts. Thank you. The podcast <laughs> shapes up as an excellent listen for any marketer or marketing enthusiast. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's a, thank you, Curious Creative 22. I think five-star reviews like that really mean a lot. You know, you know, even if you don't say that we're charming, it means a lot to us that you listen and that you leave the reviews. And, you know, those reviews really help other people to discover the podcast. And so, hey, if you want to leave a review, we'd really appreciate it. And, you know, what we might even read it during the podcast. So uh, thanks so much, everybody. Yes. Thanks, Bart. Moving on to our guest. Spencer Smith, who is the Director of Admissions for Graduate Business Programs at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Now, because of Spencer's experience, his knowledge, and his public speaking style, Bart, I think that you agree this was a wonderful and knowledgeable conversation. It really was. And one of the things I really like about Spencer is he's got both a small college background and large university background. You know, he's a Carson Newman, which Full disclosure, they're they're one of my clients that I've worked with, and then he's also at University of Knoxville, University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And I like how he kind of part of our conversation is about what the challenges and the opportunities with both small and, and large size uh, departments and 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 marketing. So uh, it's a fun episode. I, I'm sure everybody's really going to enjoy it. Here's that conversation with Spencer Smith. Spencer, in a previous conversation we had, I did give you the warning about the first question that we ask all of our guests, and that is to please share something that they've learned recently that you think would fall into the interesting or fun category. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. I uh, recently actually tried to pick up learning Spanish and quickly realized it wasn't for me. I've always wanted to speak a second language, but I learned I can't do that. But I've actually enjoyed Duolingo's French as like a game. So I've been trying to learn some basic French. I did it in high school over 10 years ago, but will I ever use it? 
Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Duolingo app. I don't mm. think I've heard of it. So yes, thank you for bringing me in because I've always wanted to speak Spanish too. Everyone, we have Spencer Smith, who is the Director of Admissions for Graduate Business Programs at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And Spencer, to help prepare for our conversation and that conversation topics are navigating transitions between one institution and another and effectively engaging Gen Z. If you would just give us a brief background to help set up our conversation with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking, I've been looking forward to it for a while. I currently, like you said, I work in graduate admissions at the College of Business at UT Knoxville. Most of my career has been in enrollment management in some form. I spent, after my master's degree, I spent a handful of years at a small liberal arts college in East Tennessee called Carson Newman, where I worked in a bunch of different roles there in admissions. And then I took kind of a brief hiatus from recruitment directly and worked at the College of Agriculture here at UT Knoxville. Uh, and I worked much more in the marketing PR space and the employer relations side of things. So I've bounced around a little bit, but the majority has been in enrollment management. Thank you. And so, as I said earlier, transitioning from institution to institution, and you've mentioned some of your previous places that you've served, one of them being what we would consider a wonderful small university. So would love for you to maybe share some of the key challenges or learnings that you've experienced as you've started this journey throughout marketing within higher ed. Absolutely. And I think, you know, starting at a private liberal arts college will definitely test your marketing skills. <laughs> yeah, it will. You know, it will. <laughs> In the Jefferson City, Knoxville, Tennessee area, everybody knows the name Carson Newman. My territory, when I started out, I recruited in Nashville and I would go to a college fair and the question I would get is, so is this a college? And so the conversation was not, here's what we have. It's, yes, we were college. I'll tell you a little bit about that first. And so that was always so interesting. You get outside of a two hour radius and people are like, what is a Carson Newman? <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting because I think that that name recognition sometimes uh, internally, we take it for granted. We mm -hmm. just think, oh, uh, everybody knows who we are. Because in our small world, uh, they do, especially like we talked about small to medium size, uh, especially regionals, you, 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 you don't have the same uh, cachet as, as UT mm -hmm. Knoxville. And so I, I think that understanding that as, as a marketer is important. Help me understand a little bit too. I mean, as you were doing that and, and talking at those college fairs, what other things were kind of surprising for you? I mean, I often hear about, you know, small budgets it's, that's different than where I am now, if I went from a small co company or even the amount of people that were working on marketing versus what I have now in a larger institution, is that the findings that you're having or is your institution at UT Knoxville, your graduate business area, a smaller one comparatively so? Yeah, that's a great question. So working in, in a smaller institution, you know, we did have our you know marketing guidelines, our branding guidelines, but I could walk right upstairs and talk to my buddy Charles anytime I needed yeah. to and say, hey, what do you think of this design? You think it's okay? And he'd be like, cool, thumbs up, go for it. Yeah. When I first came to UT, then I realized there are teams of 10 and 12 working on one big project. And so it, you have to go through a few more steps to make sure you're fitting the right guidelines. And that was a little bit of a learning curve for me. I couldn't just go knock on someone's door and have it done in 10 minutes. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that would be a, a difficult challenge. And I'm sure the opposite would be hard too, going from a larger institution where you're used to having 10, 15 people working on a project. Mm -hmm. 
and then going to a small institution like Carson Newman and, and talking to Charles. Charles, my buddy, too. I've, I've worked with Charles before. And so I know exactly who you're talking about. I mean, that's a different environment as well. I mean, I, what would you give advice to people that are making those transitions to the best way that you've learned to, to navigate that? Yeah, I think looking at the transition from from a small institution to a large institution, my, my first piece of advice is there's definitely going to be a learning curve because the immediate learning curve is, oh, there are a lot more people here, just period, not just right. students, but staff, faculty, executive leadership, what have you, and the community's larger as well. And so I think that mindset was the first thing it took me a little bit to grasp of, you know, working at a small institution, my circle of people that I worked with daily was 15, 20 people tops. And now I'm like, who's in charge of that? I'm going to have to Google who that is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how did that, how did that kind of those strategies of, of, you know, certainly dealing with more people, mm -hmm. but how did your marketing and, and engagement strategies, especially as an enrollment leader, how did that evolve as you moved to that larger institution? Did you, awesome. did you have more options or did you feel like you had more options and sometimes it was better to kind of scale back to put some boundaries around what you could do. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, I mean, you know, University of Tennessee, we got the power T. And I think that taking some of those strategies from working at a small institution with less of a brand name and kind of trying to move forward and reshape them to still take the mindset of, you know, what if the people I'm talking to have never heard of University right. of Tennessee by some chance? What would I want them to know instead of just relying on seeing just the name and that's it. And then jump, jumping right into the, the back end of why they should go there. Right. That makes sense. So I think retooling those has really helped make an impact in our reach this year in our funnel, because I think we're reaching people who really didn't, they were like, oh, Tennessee has a business school. Cool. Even though it's very well known. Do you find that sometimes they might think they know, but they don't really know what your benefits are? Absolutely. And I think that's the case with every institution. Yeah. You know, I think back to my own college journey, I came from a really, and I will talk a little more about my kind of personal side of things later, but growing up in a very rural community, I thought I had knew about college. And then I got to college and I realized I knew probably about 2% of what I should have known. Yeah. <laughs> so I think and, that's the case everywhere. Yeah. And I'm sure that as an enrollment leader and a marketer, you can help navigate those conversations with your prospective mm -hmm. students and not only in person, but maybe even in the way that you're developing those materials? Is that some of yeah, what you do? Absolutely. What I've tried to really do, and I know we'll kind of talk about Gen Z here in a little bit, of I've been trying to read some surveys and studies just to gain what what students are looking for now that they're, we're kind of moving on to a new generation, not quite exclusively, but we're quickly headed that way. Right. Uh, and I think trying to take the approach of let's reword these things to, to hit what they're really looking for and working that in instead of just the traditional, you're going to make this much money. You're going to this percent chance you're going to get a job, if that makes sense. And yeah, changing that a little bit. Yeah, that does make sense. And, and you're certainly targeting those, those younger, um, you know, students that are, you know, fresh out of undergrad that are kind of moving into the, the what would be the generation Z moving into the business college. But, you know, when you were Back at that age, you weren't Generation Z. You were you were you know millennial. At that age, though, what what were some things that you would tell yourself now about how to serve uh, in, in the smaller school that you were getting ready to start your career in? What what's yeah. something that you know Spencer from 2023 24 would tell Spencer of 2000 you know 13? What would what would you say? Yeah, I think the the first thing would be is to approach everything with a lens of access. I think when I first started out, I kind of grasped a few of the barriers to going to college. 
But now 10 years later, I've just seen so many more that I'm like, oh, wow, if students knew about this when they were deciding, it'd probably make it a little bit easier for them. So I think mm -hmm. accessibility is my number one thing. You know, I've mentioned that to you guys. Anything I can right. do to increase accessibility of higher education, because it is attainable for so many more people than people actually realize. Do you feel like there's a challenge between that level of access and, and the awareness of that between students that are looking at larger publics versus smaller privates? Is it, or is it all the same where, you know, somebody just thinks in their head, you know, maybe it's a first generation they just think I, I can't do this and, and they, they don't look at anything. I mean, do you find any differences between the different size of schools? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I would say your smaller schools tend to have a pretty large first gen population right. anyways, and, and private and your public schools do as well. But I think as far as looking at public versus private, there's not a whole lot of distinguishment. But I definitely think those first generation students are coming in with just less of an awareness than students whose parents either one or both went to college and had that college experience. Yeah, I, I could see that definitely. And I, and I think that certainly will lead into the next you know topic that we talk about, kind of those, those different effective strategies for those audiences. Yes. And Spencer and I first started this conversation a few months ago. And one of the things that we agreed we wanted to bring up is effective marketing and engagement strategies. One of the reasons, Spencer, is within that conversation, you described how you teach effective strategies and communication skills. And we'd like for you to replicate that description, especially with one of the tactics that you utilize in asking why three times. Can you let our audience know how that works? Yeah, absolutely. So I am, I'm big on leadership development, staff development. I think my team here sometimes gets annoyed at me with how many different <laughs> exercises we do because they're awkward, they're a little uncomfortable, but they help. And the biggest one that I always do, and I do this whether I'm speaking with other colleges in Tennessee or my team, we've done this a number of times. And basically it, it's a way to identify motivations a little easier of instead of just asking, what do you want to study? I want to study business. Oh, cool. Well, I'm going to tell you about the business program, right? It's you say, oh, well, I want to study business. You ask some version of why, right? You get a little bit deeper. They say, well, I did it because my best friend, John, wanted to do business. And so, and then you ask another version of why, and then you try to ask it a third time. So you're essentially just drilling down on this surface level question. And it's a little awkward. It's a little uncomfortable sometimes, but you end up finding out you go from you know, I want to be, I want to study business to, I want to run my own nonprofit because this life experience happened to me and I've used that to move forward. You know, I have, I worked with a student last year who he and his sister ran a nonprofit based off some life circumstances that had happened. And I never would have known that if I would have stopped at the application. <laughs> and so it, it's just a way to, to dive a little deeper. And so we'll sit in my office at the table behind me and I'll tell my team, one of you ask the other question and then I want you to ask why three times. It can be anything. And you just kind of sit there and giggle a little bit because it's a little uncomfortable. It's yeah. awkward, but you get that you get back and you learn just you learn really cool things about people. What do you do with that information? I mean, do you guys have something in your CRM where you can record that? Do you kind of rely on your admissions team to kind of you know use that the next time they talk? I mean, that seems like a gold mine yeah. of of personalized information that that really could be even used in some of your marketing. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. We have our CRM notes that I, you know, encourage to put in. We remember a lot of these conversations are happening at fairs. And so sometimes it's hard to capture that data easily without, I'll keep a little piece of paper in my pocket and I'll jot something down if I get the chance to remember it. 
But I think the the biggest help is it's actually helpful for the back half of that conversation at that table. My One of my first bosses, I'm sure he got this from somebody else because that's higher ed. You borrow stuff from all your you friends. You do. <laughs> and he talked about this communication strategy called the inverted triangle, basically. And so you have a triangle in three parts. The first part, the smallest part, is identify the need of the prospect. The middle part is giving out the information. And the largest part is handling objections. When we always spend a little bit of time identifying what their needs are, we give our generic spiel, and then they have a lot of objections as to why this maybe couldn't be a fit, what they didn't learn. But if you flip it, and that why allows you to spend the biggest chunk in identifying their needs. And then the you know giving information is the same amount of time, but it's highly focused on exactly what they've told you. And then hopefully, you just have a little tiny chunk that's handling objections. And by the time they, you end your conversation, they're like, wow, you answered everything I wanted to know. But in reality, we're just asking the questions beforehand to understand them a little bit better. Okay. That, that's, I love that. I love the way that you've just, you know, flipped that. Cause I think you're right. I think a lot of times we, we ask the need and then we try to, you know, position ourselves and then we, you know, answer all the questions. And I love the fact that you're getting into that, you know, kind of the Simon Sinek why that, you know, mm-hmm. you know, begin with the why. And I, and I think that's perfect. I guess one question I have for you is as you're kind of going down that 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 inverted pyramid and you're down at the very bottom, it's the, the point of it, what do you train your team to do next? So, yeah. you know, you, you get to the point where it's like, wow, this is, sounds great. I don't really have any objections. And, and if you did your job right, they should be kind of a, the best opportunity to take a next step. So how do you kind of, how do you do that with not only in-person time, but follow up with any marketing? Absolutely. I try to make sure every piece of marketing we have, whether that be our voices, you know, we've kind of had conversations. I think our voices are our most powerful marketing tools. Yeah. Down to a little piece of paper they get down to honestly, my business cards even have a link on it to get to our application. Uh, Every single thing that they get from us has some form of call to action. There's no wondering what do I do next? What do Mm. I, you know, okay, well, I guess I'll apply in a few weeks. Maybe if I feel like it. We're always, I try to encourage a straight, clear, uh, usually a hyperlinked call to action in those emails, yeah. right? Of uh, That next step is always clear cut. And I, I hope we keep, we try to maintain that all the way through the funnel, all the way until they get here in the fall or in the summer, depending on the program. Sure. sure. I love that. I'm going to piggyback on that just because I think it's one of those things that sometimes in the podcast, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, listener, pay attention. This was an important one. I love the idea that you always have a call to action. Mm-hmm. So whether it's on your business card, whether it's in your voice where you say, hey, would you like to apply now? I, I've got an iPad over here. We could actually get the application going right now. Or if you're doing a follow-up email, there's a real clear, let's, you know, inviting them to take the next mm-hmm. step, I think is one thing that many times as, as we as higher ed marketers, we, we just assume that that's, that's known. And mm-hmm. I think that it's, it's much like an invitation that people want to be asked to okay. take the next step. They want to be invited to do something. So I, I love how you're doing that with your team. You had uh, you had mentioned earlier, I'm going to shift gears on you, Spencer, but you had mentioned earlier about just this idea of your passion for making education accessible. You know, you, you talked a little bit about your own personal journey. How, how, what's driving that passion? Because I, I've got a similar passion. I know Troy does as well. We're, we're both first gen students ourselves. There is some passion in that for us because of that. But I just want to hear your story. Tell me a little bit about why Spencer's passionate about education accessibility. Absolutely. So, well, I grew up in a, in a very small town, Marion, Virginia. I'm not sure if you guys know where that is, right off 81. 
probably driven through it, but I'm not yeah. sure I... Yeah. You'd miss it if you didn't know it was there. And, you know, I, I went to a pretty small high school in a lower funded county in the state of Virginia. And, you know, I, my graduated class was a little under 100 or right above 100, right around there. And I think our college going rate was maybe one out of five, if sure. that. And I think... You know, I didn't really know the ins and outs of college. I only applied to one college and I ended up going to that college because right. that's where my mom had gone for a time. So I wasn't a first gen student. My mom had a little bit more of a non-traditional route to her bachelor's right. degree. So my college literacy wasn't quite there just because and it just wasn't a thing in my hometown. And so I got to college, almost lost all my scholarships in the first semester because I didn't know how to do college. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, I have to study. And, <laughs> you know, I ended up getting through college and then I went straight into my master's degree. When I was doing my master's degree, I worked in the first year services office as a, a, as a graduate assistant. And a whole thing was about first year programming and creating a sense of belonging. And I just kind of attached myself to that. Uh, it, it, students need to feel like they belong at whatever institution they choose for whatever reason that they would want to feel whether that's in an academic sense, in a social sense, it's college is a place to find that belonging. And so if we, as enrollment professionals, can get that across early of there's going to be a place for you, let's find it. So tell me more about you. And you, know, you may not think that it's possible, but it is. I promise you, let's look at it. Right. And I know college is not for everyone. You know, I, I absolutely agree with that statement. But for those who want to seek it, there are pathways. So I think sure that's where that kind of came from was my own eyes were like, oh, wow, you know, maybe I didn't feel like I belonged the most my first semester and I just goofed off the whole semester. Sure. But in hindsight now, it, I can see that there's a need for that for students because I had a lot of students that we'd go home for holiday break and my friends wouldn't come back in January. And I'd, yeah. I'd be like, oh, wow, this is interesting. I wonder what they're doing now. And then you never talk to them again. So that's a little bit where that where that comes from. I just think. As I've kind of gone on and I've worked in some of the financial aid side of things, it's accessibility is is financial aid related too. And so, you know, finding the right, I've, I've mentored students not to go to a college because of the debt they would incur. That was a hard conversation because, you know, I have my goals, but I want to make sure I'm taking care of the student too. Well, and I think that that's one thing, you know, getting back to kind of the Generation Z, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think that our own personal journeys kind of drive us to the way that we do our own personal marketing, whether it's through mm -hmm. our voice or whether it's through, you know, the actual campaigns that we develop. As I think that through and 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 just thinking about, I mean, first generation is going to continue to be a large percentage of of prospective students, especially for traditional undergrad. And so as you start kind of tailoring your message, whether it's a first generation student who now their first generation, you know, master's degree, right. because there's a lot of those people that, you know, they don't have anybody that went to, to you know, beyond just a four-year bachelor's degree. Right. How do you tailor your marketing strategies to kind of speak to those through the lens of what you experienced and, and maybe your team? And how, how are you how are you and your team kind of, you know, translating that to kind of create an effective strategy for yeah. Gen Z? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think kind of to, to back it up a step to kind of understand where, you know, these ideas of marketing to target Gen Z have come from is... You know, we've talked about this before. I'm in this kind of unique spot where I worked in an undergraduate uh, realm in 2016, 2017, when Gen Z were just starting to graduate right. high school. So there were all these studies and all these surveys coming out. about Here's what Gen Z wants. You know, I'm a zillennial. I'm kind of right between the two. But it's, it was so funny because they just kept coming out study after study on what 17-year-old kids want for sure. 
I don't know anybody that knew what they wanted at 17. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's going to be forever that way. So. <laughs> and so these initial studies said, you know, Gen Z is all about return on investment. What are they going to get out of this? They want to make sure they're going to make money. They don't want to take out debt, right? right. So we're like, oh, cool. We're going to take this. We're going to run with it. And then as I've kind of moved to the graduate space, we're having these same conversations again, because from graduation to about three to five years out almost is where we're starting to see that Gen Z population, which is prime target area for our programs. And there's some new studies coming out and ROI is still number one. But where I think a lot of institutions, and I mean, I myself was missing this boat for a little while until I saw these studies come out, is there's two kind of arms to that now. There's your traditional ROI, right? Finances, debt, job placement, my salary, et cetera. But there was another section that I read about that has just been fascinating to me that they called emotional ROI in these papers of, yes, they want to make sure that they're going to be in good shape financially, but maybe just as if not more important, they want to know that what they're doing is important. They want to know that they're going to have an impact. They want to care about what they're doing and something that just means something. Hmm. And they want to know that the people they're going to school for, that those people care about them too. And so I think we have kind of taken this approach of we just rebranded everything and it's in like the 99th percentile stage, fingers crossed, pending any last minute edits. But we have changed our wording to be more along the lines of, you know, make an impact that, you know, here's the empowerment you're going to receive from this program. You're going to have professionals in the business industry that want to pour into you to prepare you to be a leader, to have an impact afterwards. I think it's just this kind of tone shift away from you're going to make money. We're not going to get a whole lot of debt or, you know, depending on the school too, you're going to have an impact in what you do. We want it to matter. So we're going to help you get in that position. That's cool. And I, and I appreciate you kind of showing, leading into that rebranding effort, because I think you're right. There's, I did a presentation last week on, I've got a presentation that I do on generation, generational marketing. So the idea of you know, why Gen Z thinks this way, why Gen Alpha is going to think this way, why boomers think this way. And so when I think about a school like yours, the, the graduate school, obviously you have a large prospective student population that's going to span generations. You've got leadership that are probably boomers or Xers. You've got a lot of faculty that are boomers and Xers. And so how did you navigate the fact that, you know what, guys, time out, we need to rebrand everything to be, I mean, I hate to use the word touchy-feely, but that's what some of them would see it as. Right. They would see it as, hey, let's just get the facts out there. This is the kind of, this is the results they're going to get on, on the investment. You're going to come in, you're going to be business. Boom. We're all about the the numbers. And for you to come in and say, actually, no, let's talk more about the emotional impact and, and the missional type of things and, and the, the, uh, the, 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 the mental health type things. How did you navigate that? Because I can't imagine that that was easy. That's a great question. So, you know, I, I still have the excuse that I'm new enough to not get in trouble. Right? <laughs> Use <laughs> that as long as you can, right? Nine months now. But, you know, my, my executive director and associate dean, thankfully, are very supportive of kind of what we were looking because MBA, full-time MBA programs across the country have kind of been seeing some declines yeah. in applications. And, and Haslam was no, not immune to that. Those numbers are public. We took a dip in the same years that all these other institutions are taking a dip. And so it was kind of uh, when I presented in my interview, it was they asked me to do a presentation on where I see the vision going. You know, I said, we need to 
distinguish our programs. You know, the rankings are there, the salaries are there. We can still include that, but we need to make sure we marry that as perfectly as we can to that emotional ROI side of things. So they're still going to get that information out that they want, right? We're ranked such and such in this. You're going to get a hundred and some thousand dollar salary. And we're still getting that in there, but it's kind of all in the air of having an impact and being your best in the middle of that, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I think that that takes a uh, takes some courage to do that. And I think that that's uh, so kudos to you for doing that. But I, I think it also and I, I heard you kind of say that, but I kind of want to reiterate that a little bit is that having the support of your executive director, the associate dean, the dean, have all having all of them understanding the perspective that you're coming on. And I'm sure that you showed some of the studies and you showed some of the papers and you you at least referenced those. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the keys of being able to navigate that well is being able to have proof that you can they can use to in the arguments because it, it doesn't comes down to subjectivity. I mean, these are objective reasons why we're going in this direction for the marketing and the branding. So that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, th- that's very helpful advice for everyone. Thank you, Spencer. Yeah, and I'm a big data person. I yeah. love data. I love talking to people, but I also just love numbers. So it's, I try to do graphs and visual data when I can, because it just helps me easier. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a button somewhere. I don't know where it is, but it says the data don't lie. And I <laughs> her button out. love that office right now. <laughs> I love that. Well, Spencer, you started to share a little bit about your passion for pursuing data. And I'd like to get into a conversation around what are some of your either personal ane- anecdotes or maybe experiences, things that have helped you along the way that others can glean from as higher ed marketing leaders? Absolutely. You know, the first story that comes to mind is, you know, when I worked at Carson Newman, I I was the assistant director of undergrad admissions there, but I was also our event coordinator. So all of our showcase days, our preview days, they all fell under kind of my planning. And then I would also do a lot of reporting on that. And if you don't do reports on your events and not just like how many showed up, but if you can break it down into every level of the funnel, we were able to see things that we didn't even know existed. And the example I like to give is we always talk about, you know, the percentage of if this student comes to this event, they are X percent likely to enroll in the fall. What we did as my VP at the time and myself had this idea of, well, what if we combined that and we look at what happened when they attend one, two, three, or four or more events. And we wanted to take a look and see if that compounded any. And so what we found was if they attended one event, about a 30% chance, one in one in three roughly, that they were going to be in a seat that next fall. They came to two events, it jumped up to 83%. Wow. If they went to three events, now the sample size was pretty small, but if they went to three or more events, it was 100% across the board. And so then we started changing our direction completely in our marketing to we need to encourage to get these students in for two different types of visits mm-hmm. instead of just one and be like, oh, cool, they've been to an event, they're engaged. We, we then tried to get them to two. And the year we implemented that, I mean, our, our enrollment, there was a lot of factors that we knew it that year, but I think that was part of it of we were able to exceed our goals that year in pretty much every way, shape or form, all the way from event attendance to final enrollment numbers at census day. And I think that was part of that puzzle that year is we just had this idea about like, what is if we just looked at it this way? And that was super helpful. That's interesting. And I'm curious because I'm going to kind of piggyback on another uh, question because this question came up during my generational marketing. 
uh, presentation because one of the traits of Generation Z is they like to do things together. They're they're very collaborative. Uh, you know, my Xers are kind of known for as the middle generation, and and you know, we're just kind of on our own type of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. and so, but I think that Generation Z, one thing that defines them even more than maybe millennials is that they like to do things together. And so, one of the questions that came up is like. How can we practically do that with visit days? How can we practically do that when they come on campus? You know, is it better to have them do group activities? I mean, I know Zemi is a huge thing right now where people are, you know, going to talk about where they're going to go to school and a social network. And and so how do you kind of approach that from knowing those traits of Generation Z, seeing the data that says, hey, if we do these things more than if we get them to more than one or two events, we've got a greater chance of them, you know, matriculating. Mm-hmm. And then also knowing that, hey, if we can get them to do things together and be, begin to build community, I mean, do you have any data or any anecdotes that, that you see some of those types of things working or or what's your gut yeah. feel? So I think uh, and now I have two examples. So the first one's now currently. So our full-time MBA program is exceptionally team heavy. We just did our MBA case competition this past Friday where groups of five compete against each other and get presentations to be ranked about who wins, basically. Phenomenal. We brought in PepsiCo last year to do it, so I'm excited to see who we bring in in the spring. But it's a way for them to really build off of each other because they it's a team effort. Every single one of them has to pull their weight in this. And so right. we push that. Even on our website, we talk about team-driven learning being one of our kind of core pillars on the website itself. That's and great. When you back that up to visit days and event days, and this is where I'll kind of get into that other example is in the graduate realm, I love to do everything roundtable style. So if we're eating food, it's at roundtables. So we're there, we're talking to each other, we're looking at each other. We have them sit together based on their program when we can. So if I've got two students who I know want to do the MBA, I'm going to go seat them over here at table four together. And we, you know, we do an event called Orange Carpet because, you know, volunteer orange instead of red carpet. Right. And we invite admitted students to all come and we do a nice dinner. There's a place out in Knoxville we do with different venues that we just get off campus and do a nice formal dinner. And we do some giveaways and listen to some music and just have a nice dinner around a table for about two hours. And that's where they kind of all get to meet. That's the first time these students are like, oh, cool. You're going to be here this fall with me. Good that's to know. Great. my cell phone number. Back that up to the undergrad side. There are two things I always recommended whenever I've talked to anybody about events. The first thing split the parents and the students up because they want very different things on those days. Yeah. And to just talk about the student, because the parents said there's a whole other way you can go about that. But to the students, we did activities that required them to talk to each other, whether that was inflatable jousting. Uh, we did <laughs> called roommate speed dating, where you get 60 seconds with another person who's looking for a roommate to ask some basic questions. And if you want to be roommates that day with someone, you get to make that decision while you're on campus. Mm. Uh, and so it's, we were gearing everything towards forcing is a strong word, but for lack of a better word, forcing them to make community early. Right. And that, that seemed to really, really help when they showed up already having connections, especially for folks that were coming, not from the immediate Tennessee area. Now, those are, those are excellent ideas. And I, I love that. I mean, this has been such a practical conversation, Spencer. Yeah. We, you're like, you know, perfect guest. You're you're bringing you're bringing and dropping it, which I love. So I guess one one final question on this personal insights and, and and growth topic that we've been talking about a little bit is is you know you've got all these different experiences, you've got all these different ways. At the very beginning, I heard you talking about I'm reading these white papers, I'm reading this research, everything that I'm reading. Tell me how you're staying up to bit up to date on 
you know, your own professional development? How are you, you know, keeping keeping the 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 axe sharpened or, you know, the different things that Covey talks about with just taking care of your own personal development. How do you do that? And what would you recommend that young professionals or even anybody do to do that? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I think when I started out, and again, I'll credit my first VP, he and I still talk quite a bit. He now works over for an enrollment consultant company, but uh, we actually, he texts me every now and then about different ideas. But the first thing he told me about the way he stayed up to date, this ended up being a little too chaotic for me, but I probably just didn't refine it enough, is he set up Google alerts with certain keywords about things he wanted to learn more about, about his current institution to where if any news dropped, he would be the first one to see it or for rankings. I have kind of stuck with that, but it's very limited because those Google alerts will blow your inbox. <laughs> Especially on something like University of Tennessee. So. Yes, yes. With with a small school, a little bit different. But uh, I also now just try to find different higher ed journals and organizations to be involved in and to subscribe to when I can. I try to find the free ones where I can. But the biggest thing is, you know, I just rolled off the board of the Tennessee Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admissions Officers. And that is just all undergrad colleges in the state coming together, sharing resources, presenting my role. I've led workshops across the state where we just kind of traded best ideas and best practices and really just networked and built community across the state. And so I think finding as many ways as possible to get involved. I ended every single one of those presentations with a call to action. Exactly. <laughs> involved in that. I would expect it. Because, you know, TACRO, that, that is organization, that helped me get to where I am now in my career. I would not yeah. be at the University of Tennessee had it not been for a colleague that I met through that organization. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so wise, Spencer. We can't do it alone. And mm-hmm. and one thing I have found, and, and Troy and I have talked about this many times, is the idea that I've had you know career spanning a lot of different verticals, but higher education is one very unique one where you hear people talking about best practices and openly sharing that. I mean, if I went to a retail conference, I doubt if, you know, Target and Walmart be talking about over lunch on, hey, I really thought this email worked really well. You wouldn't find that. Um, But that's what's different about higher ed that I think drives a lot of people to be passionate about what we do. And I think that you're exactly right. I mean, networking, finding those resources, whether they're print magazines or podcasts or other ways to kind of, you know, don't wait until the professional development budget's going to get expired and you're like, oh, I guess I better get to a conference. That's right. something you can do all the time with without a budget too, and I, and I think that really makes us all sharpens us and makes us all better. So I think that's great. Thank you for that tip. Absolutely, Spencer. Our last request to you would be to share a piece of advice of something that once heard by a listener, a brick could be moved immediately, or something that they can implement right away. Do you have something that either you often share or maybe it's something that you're going to share uniquely today? Absolutely. I kind of have a go-to that I talk about because, you know, I talk a lot about motivations in those tabling scenarios. And the question I get the most is how do you properly go about spending so much time identifying needs? How do you know you're not barking up the wrong tree? And there was a simple trick that I kind of learned slash was told six or seven years ago uh, when you're doing that why people love to end up talking a little more like when they once they open up and they they say very distinctly I would say nine out of ten times they will either lead with a statement of I feel like or I think hmm. and I would kind of use that as a gauge of if I heard them repeatedly say those words I would kind of lean into more 
you know, if I heard feel, I would lean more into that sense of belonging, more into the culture, more into the support. And if I heard think, I would lean more into the logic and the outcomes and the data behind it. And that has seemed to pay off for me. I seem to get really deep relationships with people just kind of leaning into that a little bit. And so that's just kind of an easy, small, it takes practice. Obviously everything does, but I think it, it's just an easy way you can implement that today uh, if, if you wanted to. Brilliant. Thank you. We've been talking to Spencer Smith. Again, he's the Director of Admissions for Graduate Business Programs at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you if someone would like to? Absolutely. My email is the easiest way, and it's super simple. It's just my first name, so S-P-E-N-S-E-R. That throws a lot of people off. Just Spencer at UTK.edu. Super simple. Thank you. We've enjoyed having you. And like Bart said, we love the practical tips that you've dropped here on the program. So again, thank you for being a guest. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Bart, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share? Yeah, I really like uh, this conversation, as I've indicated already, just whenever I can get very pragmatic and, and really be able to walk away with kind of a, a list of a few things that I ought to I to go back and try and, and implement even in my own uh, practice or school. And so I really appreciate that Spencer did that today. I'm also grateful for just um, his expertise of bringing some of those insights for Generation Z and uh, and being vulnerable enough to share his own personal journey and, and, and how that has impacted impacted him. And I think overall, I mean, one of the things that I'll take away from this this episode and this conversation is the, the whole idea of that inverted triangle, kind of starting with the whys. And I appreciate the fact that you said that it can be a little awkward at first, but I think that once we get past that, I think we really can add a, a depth of value to our prospective students by just helping them articulate what's driving their passions, not only for us to help serve them better, but also for them to actually more than likely have a greater propensity to succeed because they understand what's driving them, kind of that Simon Sinek, you know, you know, begin with the why type of thing. This has been such a great conversation, Spencer, and I've really appreciated getting to know you, and thanks for the time. Thank you. It's been great. And thank you, Bart, for those final words. I'm hearing that that portion of our episodes are becoming very popular, so thank you for sharing that wrap-up. Also, thanks to Rob Conlon at Westport Studios for helping us get this podcast out in a timely manner and very efficiently every week. The Higher Ed Marketer podcast is sponsored by Kaler Solutions, an education marketing and branding agency, and by Ring Digital, the ad targeting people, precisely and accurately placing ads directly to the handheld and household devices of the inquiries that are on your current mailing list within the enrollment funnel. On behalf of our guest, Spencer Smith, my co-host, Bart Kaler, and myself, Troy Singer, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. The Higher Ed Marketer is a production of Kaler Solutions and Ring Digital in partnership with Westport Studios. Views and opinions expressed by guests on The Higher Ed Marketer are their own and may not reflect the views and opinions of their organization. Know someone who is a mover and a shaker in higher ed marketing? 
visit www.higheredmarketerpodcast.com and click on our Contact Us page. We'd love to have you tell us about them. Until next time.